Good morning. Good morning. Just checking you're here. Um, we're going to let me say a few things to tear up before we get to that. We are in a little teaching series that started last week called One Another. Uh, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. I want us to begin by uh, you imagining or recalling you at your worst. Now, some of you at this point are like, me? Like, I'm an angel. Uh, me and Jesus, we're like virtually the same. Uh, the reality is, of course, that we all have, don't we, stuff about us that we would be horrified if most of the rest of our world saw it. So just for a moment, bring it to mind. You at your worst, when you're the most perhaps grumpy, impatient, selfish, short with people, woe is me, I'm a slug. Whatever it is, your version of you at your worst. I only have to think about this morning, by the way, before I'm kind of there. So we're in this together. I don't know what your version of you at your worst looks like, but the reality is that all of us are works in progress. All of us are people who are trying to make our way into all that Jesus has saved us for, and it's a hard journey. And along the way, we have moments where we feel, don't we, like, oh my goodness, am I ever going to get there? Now, the truth is that uh, most of us, I'm sure, if we thought about those times, those moments when we've been at our worst, when we've come to God in that place, if we've come to God in that place, often we don't, certainly initially, do we? Um, I'm sure you'd say to me that what you met, what you found in God was kindness and compassion and ultimately forgiveness, right? Even at our very worst, if we come before God in humility, we find his kindness and his compassion and his forgiveness. That's the wonder of being reunited with our Heavenly Father through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son through the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe here. The question for me, then, is more about whether we find in one another, when we're at our worst and we perhaps uh, reveal that to one another, consciously or not, deliberately or not, do we find in one another kindness, compassion, and forgiveness? You heard last week from Paul that we are called by Jesus Christ, if we are his people, to love one another and to love one another as he loves the church. To love one another as God has first loved us, which involves at least in part kindness, compassion and forgiveness, right? So it sounds great, doesn't it? Love one another. But when you understand what Jesus meant by that, the kind of loving one another that he had in mind, you realize it's actually very, very difficult. And most often we find it hardest when either we or someone else that we're called to love is at their worst. 
It's easy to love people when they're being all the things you'd like them to be and need them to be, but when they need you, or perhaps when they are just really struggling, how well are we doing at being kind and loving and forgiving? The aim of this series is to take a deep look at how we relate to one another as followers of Jesus, and it's not easy. There's room for improvement amongst us all, let me tell you. And if we adopt that posture, then we have, hopefully, the opportunity to grow. And it's really important. This is, as we heard last week, central to who we are as the people of God. Jesus said, how will people know that you're my disciples? By the way that you love one another. So not only is it very, very important for you and I as the people of God, but it is also our witness to the world. The number one reason why people will tell you, this is the data, they're not really interested in the, Christians, the Christian faith, is they look at the church and they see hypocrisy. You say this, but you don't really do it. So we need to be very mindful of that. This isn't like an optional extra for us. You know, we're going to get the job done, bring in the mission of God, renew all things, hopefully da-da-da-da-da. And if along the way we happen to be a bit better at loving one another, then so be it, bonus. But, you know, that's not really the task. Actually, I want to suggest to you this morning that loving one another is getting the job done. That is how you do it. The way we usher in the things of the kingdom on behalf of Jesus is by loving one another. That's how you do it. That is mission. That is ministry. When we love one another the way Jesus wants us to, we are being the body of Christ to one another and to the world. So Andy Stanley puts it like this. He's a pastor in America. He says, the primary activity of the church, he's talking here in the context about the early church to make his point, the primary activity of the church was one anothering one another. Let's put it into the present tense. The primary activity of the church should be to one another, one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Encourage one another, etc., etc. That is our work. And when we do that, God can do his work. In us and through us. When we love one another, we experience a life in community that sets us free to be truly human. In fact, theologians, I think, rightly insist that the scriptures make abundantly clear the truth that we cannot be fully human, we cannot fully embody God in the world unless we are in community. So Stanley Grentz, who wrote an amazing book, Theology for the Community of God, says this, as Christians, we enjoy not only a personal, but also a shared identity. This identity becomes ours as we exemplify the goal for which we were created, to love God and be loved by him. God desires that we reflect his own image, and because God is a social reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is only in community that we are able to reflect the divine nature. In other words, we have to learn how to love one another and keep learning, and keep trying every day until Jesus returns or we go on to glory. That is our work. And when we think it's more than that, we miss a trick. Uh, One of my favourite cartoonists, Australian Michael Lernig, puts it more simply, love one another and you will be happy. 
It's as simple and difficult as that. So with that big vision set before us, throughout the rest of this series, it's just a few weeks, we're going to focus in on some of the key ways that we are called to love one another. There are actually 59 one another statements in the New Testament. So we could have spent a whole year on this, which perhaps would have been fruitful, but um, there's other things we want to teach into. Even so, there are some that repeat themselves throughout the New Testament. Some of the key one another's that over and over again, Paul and other New Testament writers reiterate that are there in the Gospels as well. So we've picked out three that we think are the most important and or most relevant to where we're at as a church right now. And today we're looking at the call to be kind, to be compassionate, and to be forgiving to one another. So uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians (laughs) chapter 4, which uh, Viv is going to read a portion of for us now. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17, and if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1185. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with our own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So keep your Bibles open. We're going to 
work our way quickly through bits of that and linger longer on verse 32. This passage that we've just heard uh, comes uh, at the very beginning of, if you like, of the second half of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through to 3 are principally Paul's attempt to cast a vision for who Christ is, what he's done, and what that means for us. It's beautiful. Three chapters. And then he essentially says, now given all of that, verses four, five, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, this is how you live it out. This is the implication for you, the people of God. These are the things that it means for you. And so uh, notice verse uh, 1, sorry, verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. When you get little words like so, or therefore, or because of this, what you need to remember is that the writer is saying, given what I've just said, this is something you need to pay attention to. Okay, so, so, so because of everything I've just told you, I insist, I insist on it in the Lord. And, and what does he insist on? He insists, actually, that we learn to live according to our new selves, not our old selves. So prior to this, he's been talking about what Christ has done. And he uses this metaphor of taking off the old self, the the raggedy, uh, smelly, sinful version, and putting on the new cleansed by Jesus, made righteous by Jesus version of yourself. And he says you basically have to learn how to live out that new identity. And you do it in community, and you do it by one anothering one another. That's how it works. So that's his language here. And notice why, verse 24, because we were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus has redeemed us. The Spirit is sanctifying and transforming us so that we become that which we were made to be originally. And so the task is to live into that God-given new identity given to us by grace which now bit by bit becomes more and more true of us through the Spirit. And we help each other get there by one anothering one another. Now Paul in this uh, little section that we've just had read gives us seven things that we should do. Uh, And he sets them up as don't do this because that's what the old self would do. Instead do this because this is what the new self should do. And so there's a kind of don't do this, do this instead list. Now we're not going to go through them all. Obviously we haven't got time. We could do, we could do a morning on each if we wanted to. But notice that actually if we are to be kind, compassionate and forgiving, which is where we're going to spend most of our time, verse 32, actually all the other six are part of how you do that. You can't be kind or compassionate or forgiving if actually you're doing some of the things earlier in this passage that we're told we're not to do anymore. So we're told to speak truthfully, not to lie. You can't be kind, compassionate and or forgiving forgiving if you're lying. So we need to learn to speak truthfully to one another. And elsewhere the scriptures explain how we might do that. We're told not to sin when we get angry. So the assumption here is you will get angry. Getting angry is an emotion. It's okay to get angry. What's up for discussion is how we respond to our anger. What do we do in anger? Do we sin or not? We have to learn and seek the fruit of the Spirit around self-control. 
Uh, he says in verse 28, we're to work for the common good. We shouldn't just be thinking about getting for ourselves. And the backstory there is there was lots of stealing going on in Ephesians. It was, uh, in Ephesus, it was a kind of hedonistic, moral, uh, morally bankrupt place. Everyone was out for themselves. And he's saying, no, actually the people of God, you need to work in such a way that actually you're seeking the common good. You're seeking human flourishing. Uh, he says that we need to speak to one another in such a way that they're built up. That the way we use our words is important. That we can destroy or we can build up. Be people who build up, he says. Verse 30, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That is a whole topic in and of itself. But essentially, it's don't do things that actually make God sad. Verse uh, 31, there's this then list of things that we're to get rid of. And the, the metaphor there is the best translated as take it to the dump. You know, when you go to the tip to get rid of stuff, that's the metaphor. It's gone. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling. I've not seen a brawl around here for a while. Slander, every form of malice. Get rid of it all. There's bits of bitterness around, for sure. There's definitely moments of malice, but I've not seen any brawling, thankfully. Now, the point Paul's making is that uh, these are the kind of things that it will look like if you're serious about being who you really are. This is what it's going to cost you. These are the things you're going to have to pay attention to and make sure you become like. Okay? It's not an exhaustive list. He's, it's an indicative list. It's, a, it's a, a set of examples. And he was speaking directly to the context at the time. These were issues in Ephesus at the time in the church. If he was writing to us today, he might have a slightly different list. Okay? But the point is, they all come with the territory. Are you with me so far? Great. Verse 32 is the key verse. And uh, any commentator I've read says he's ultimately building up to this point. Because these first six verses kind of, they're very specific, but they're caught up and wrapped up in this then final catch all list of things that we're to do to be kind, to be compassionate, and to be forgiving. And so we're going to focus for the rest of our time on that. So, number one, be kind and compassionate. <laughs> Interestingly, we, we might be tempted to think of them as three different things, but in the original text, they come together. So be kind and compassionate. In other words, it's not enough just to be kind. You also need to be compassionate in your kindness. It's not okay just to be compassionate. You also need to be kind. They're, one and, they're two sides of, or two bits to the same thing. Now, the word in the original text for kind here is the word krestos. And it only appears elsewhere, this particular word for kindness, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which uh, is when Jesus is describing God's kindness towards the ungrateful and selfish, which is all of us on a bad day, right? The kindness of God, which Jesus says comes even to the ungrateful and selfish. Paul is deliberately using this particular verse, sorry, this particular word for kindness to make a point. He wants to define for us, I think, the limits of our kindness. Because it's very easy, isn't it, to be kind to people we like. It's very easy to be kind to people who are kind back. It's much harder 
to be kind when perhaps we don't think it's going to be reciprocated or the people that are stood before us actually do our heads in. It's okay not to like everybody in the church. It's not okay to not love one another. Okay? And I think what Paul is trying to say to us here is that there are no limits to your... There should be no limits to your kindness. When it comes to be kindness, we are to be kind to everyone. It cannot be contingent. In other words, kind of, if I feel like it. Contingent, dependent on what day of the week it is, whether I got enough sleep. It can't be contingent, and it can't be conditional. In other words, it can't be so that I get something back, or because they've been nice to me, I'll be nice back. It can't come with any strings attached. It just has to be kindness, because I believe in loving the person in front of me, even if actually part of me wants to punch them. You ever feel like that? You ever been in a small group and thought, oh my life, how am I spending an evening with this person? Nervous laughter. Uh, Seneca, the Roman philosopher, who interestingly was around at the time of Jesus in Rome, uh, he famously said uh, this. uh, Oh, there we go. Uh, Oh, I don't know where it's gone. He said, uh, it'll turn up. He said this, wherever there is a human being, there is an opportunity for kindness. (laughs) I like that. Wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for kindness. This is more than just being super nice to people. Having pity on someone because they're less fortunate than you and thinking, well, I'm a Christian, I'll be nice to them. This is about being somebody who seeks consciously, prayerfully, generously to show somebody love and mercy and grace despite what might be presented to you in this person, despite whether they deserve it or not, despite whether you get anything back from it or not, just because that's what it is to be the people of God. That's what it is to be someone who carries the divine image of God in their very being. And so offering kindness to one another will at times be really difficult. Have you ever noticed that the times you need to be loved most need to see kindness from others is when you're at your most unloving, unlovable, most unkind. Anyone with young children? We get it, right? But actually, adults, we're not a huge amount different. We've just got a bit more sophisticated in our managing of our dysfunctional behavior. Tom Wright, the theologian, puts it like this uh, somewhere here. He says, the command to kindness asks that we spend our time looking not at ourselves and our needs, our rights, our wrongs that need writing, but at everyone else and their needs, pressures, pains, and joys. Kindness, he says, is the primary way of growing up as a human being, of establishing and maintaining the richest and deepest relationships. It's fundamental to being the people of God. Now, as a family, uh, last weekend, uh, we watched a film called Wonder. Anyone seen Wonder, the film? Amazing film. It's based on a book by the same name. It's about a boy who's born with a a severely disfigured face who eventually has to go to school. And uh, essentially, it's about how he teaches his peers and the staff in this school how to really be kind. 
and to learn to see people for more than just what they look like, more than what they just present. And in this story, his school teacher every month gives a precept, like a, a little motto to the kids, and says, you've got a month to learn what this looks like, to practice it in your little community as a class. Uh, and here's the first one. For the first, this is the September. It's their first one in the year. Um, the author's R.J. Palacio, and she, she wrote this beautiful book. He, he, here's the first precept. When given the choice between being right or being kind, choose kind. And if, you, if you're on social media and you search for a hashtag choose kind, you'll see this entire little movement in America built around this little book. This means that kindness is a choice. It's a practice. And it's going to cost you. It won't always come naturally. In fact, it really doesn't come naturally. We have to really work at it. But when we choose to be kind, at the expense of being right which is often where the real test comes in, you know? We make room for people to not be okay. Because it's actually okay not to be okay. It's meant to be true of the church that you can come as you are, not okay, and find people who meet you in kindness in that place. They don't try to correct you. They don't try to tell you, well, it's all your fault. They don't give you three things to go away and do before they love you. They just are kind. Because they know you need it. So that's kindness. It comes with this call to be compassionate as well. And the word compassion uh, in the English is uh, literally, derived from the Latin, literally means to suffer with. To have passion for somebody actually means to be willing to suffer for it, which is why we talk about the passion of the Christ, particularly in Holy Week. Jesus suffered for us because of his love for us. So in a sense, compassion is radical kindness. It's this willingness to go beyond just being the most supportive, wonderfully kind, loving person and actually being someone who will enter into the reality of someone else's life, the messy, crappy stuff, and suffer with them. Actually feel it. Actually take some of it on. Actually walk the road with them. Be there for them. Pick them up again and again and again. Keep on telling them what they need to know. It's not enough just to be kind to someone. We have to be kind with someone. We have to be willing to suffer with them. Now, we can't all do that for everybody, but we should all be doing it for somebody. Because the reality is everybody's got stuff that's really hard. Everybody is making a hard journey. Everyone's dealing with something where they need to know kindness and compassion from at least one, if not a good number, of people in this family. And at our very best, All Saints, we do this very, very, very well. It's one of the things I'm so proud of when it comes to this place. But if I'm honest, there are moments where I find that I'm saddened that someone hasn't had that experience. And at times, they've had the opposite. And that's not okay. And so we've got room for improvement. The wording, the Greek, interestingly here, for the compassionate, is actually, and I don't really know how to pronounce it, but 
go with this. If I say it confidently, you'll all believe me, right? It's carizo menoi. Uh, carizo menoi. And it's the same root word for charis, which is the word for grace. And it literally means to act in grace. So it encompasses compassion, but it's probably even more big picture than that. What Paul is saying is, be kind and act in grace towards people. Extend the very grace of God into someone's life for them. Be grace to them. Grace, this beautiful Jesus thing that says, I'm going to love you anyway, even though you don't deserve it. I'm going to suffer for you and with you because I love you and because this is not what God has for you and I'm willing to die in the process. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what compassion means. It's a whole lot harder the more we look at it, right? So it's not contradictory to this kind of idea of suffering with. It's, it's part and parcel of the same things. It literally really means to say, I'm going to love and serve and be kind without condition, without limit. I'm just going to be there for you. And we're going to do this together even if I die in the process. And interestingly, if you go and read church history, what you'll find is the early church literally did that. One of the things that vexes the Roman leaders of the day is when towns and cities find themselves kind of riddled with the plague and everyone's escaping to save their life. The Christians stayed with the dying because they knew that they were called to have compassion on them, to act in grace, and they died with them. And that's one of the things that ultimately meant the church church caused the tumbling down of the Roman Empire. It's subversive. No one's going to give you a badge. No one's going to give you an award. But you get a reward in the fullness of time. One of the places I see this regularly worked out uh, in, in our life actually is down at the food bank, where if you've ever been down there, our team are just amazing. And they're not all even people of faith, actually, but there's a culture there of like when whatever a client has brought into the room with them doesn't matter. If they're hungry, if they need food, we'll give them food, regardless of why. So sometimes, frankly, they are there because they made some dumb decisions. But ours is to extend grace. That's our call. To love them anyway. Because it liberates. They come in. You see them coming in feeling ashamed particularly if they've not been there before. They're scared, they're ashamed, they feel guilty, they feel, they feel bottom of the rung. And some of them literally are surviving. And they walk in and our team smile. And they find out what their name is and often they've got kids in tow. And so we make them a cup of tea and a coffee and we give the kids something to play and we give them something to eat and we say, what's your story? And you can see them thinking, I've got to justify why I'm here, I've got a voucher. And our team are like, it's not about the voucher, it's about you. And so the voucher gets taken off by somebody else and they go off and pick the food and meanwhile this family or individual or couple, whoever it is, are getting cared for. And then they find out a bit more and they say, oh, actually, would you like, to the kids, would you like to come and choose a toy from the toy shelf? And if it's someone's birthday, we go and find them a present that's already been wrapped up for that age and gender and we say, happy birthday because sometimes that's the only present they get. And I've watched them walk out. Totally different. 
Maybe you've got all the same stuff to go home to, but, but in that moment, they experience kindness and true compassion. And a little bit of them came back to life. So a question for you. Who in this community, who in your wider set of net friendships and relationships, do you need to be kinder and more compassionate towards? The second thing that Paul talks about is um, this need to forgive each other. Now, forgiveness, people write entire books about this, right? So in a few minutes, just a couple of thoughts to link it to everything I've said so far. Paul, again, I think, is wanting to think, us to think of this as something we do, not just every so often when we really need to, but actually as something more fundamental to how we go about being who we are. It's not just this thing that happens every so often between two or more people because there's been some massive bust up or there's been some kind of like cold war of communication and it's, we've ended up in these entrenched positions and we need to kind of somehow facilitate a kind of coming back together and often you need someone to help you do that and I find myself often as a vicar having to do that for other people and frankly sometimes with you because for whatever reason we've allowed a distance to grow between us and we've not dealt with the real reasons why and that's all very important and part of this but Paul is scratching at something more beautiful and more challenging and more day-to-day which is this idea actually of it being something we do as we go we forgive on the road we forgive on the journey because day in day out we need to be forgiven for all sorts of things don't we and day in day out so do you And actually, we need to do it for other people all the time. Forgiveness is the giving and receiving of life. When we forgive someone, we set them free. We set them free to be and to become. That's why it's so, so important. Tom Wright puts it like this. He says, forgiveness is a way of life. God's way of life. God's way to life. It starts with Jesus on the cross. We cannot have new creation life were it not for the forgiveness of God that we experience in through Jesus Christ. And we're called to take it and extend it into the world. We forgive as we have been forgiven. Because we've been forgiven, we should forgive. And sometimes that is so hard. But if we don't forgive as we've been forgiven, Jesus actually goes as far as to say, you don't really understand forgiveness. It's fundamental. It's not every so often. It's everyday stuff. In other words, we need to choose to be people who forgive others as we go without them needing to know we've even forgiven them. So when the toilet lid is up again, just put it down and forgive him. When your child doesn't say thank you, again, then forgive them. It doesn't mean you don't parent, it doesn't mean you don't challenge, but it means as you go, you don't let this kind of list of things that you just kind of resent build. Do you know what? You just become one of those really hard, brittle people to be around. It's you that gets affected, not the other person. They don't even realise they've upset you. They're living their life. It's you that gets taken out by it. 
And eventually we react, don't we, if it all gets too much. No, Paul says, forgive as you go. It's not this kind of moment-by-moment thing. Uh, Every so often thing, it's a moment-by-moment thing. It's really hard, which is why we don't do it very well. It's really hard. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. He says, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. But practice it, we must. It's crucial. And it's crucial for church because ultimately it's about relationships and forgiveness is the key to healthy relationships. We'll put it another way. If you want to kill off your relationships, just ignore the unforgiveness in your heart. Unforgiveness is the quickest way to kill off relationships. More often than not, that is the root issue in the breakdown of some kind of relationship, any kind of relationship. It might be on top of other things. It might be as a result of other things. But it's the unforgiveness that has power. And here's the deal, right? Um, I'm forever saying sorry to some or all of you as your leader because I'm imperfect. I do my best. Um, My best isn't always good enough. Um, And sometimes I have to say sorry to you. And there are times where I've hurt you and disappointed you and upset you. And I'm telling you, again, it's never intentional. And so you actually need to tell me, because I often don't realize, um, and you need to help me help you. But what sometimes comes to light eventually is I realize that I've upset someone or hurt them, and for whatever reason, someone hasn't forgiven me. And actually, they're the ones that get trapped by that. They're the ones that get eaten alive by that. I have no idea that I've upset someone. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I do, and I'll come and try to take the initiative. But we need to own our unforgiveness and go to someone and say we need to work this out but actually we can avoid that if most of the time as we go we can just choose to forgive give someone the benefit of the doubt choose to just let it go because it wasn't that big a deal or if it is a big deal deal with it properly that's stuff we looked at in James last term about how you deal with dysfunction okay it's so important but here's the other thing that when unforgiveness in us towards someone else builds up, when we don't deal with it, actually the more general thing that happens to us is that we become someone who withdraws a little from all of our relationships, not just that one. We withhold kindness, compassion, and grace. And bit by bit, we end up with a hardened heart and quite isolated. It's insipid unforgiveness. The power of forgiving is not just to liberate the person who needs to be forgiven, it's also to liberate you to be and to become. And so Philip Yancey puts it like this. He says, forgiveness is the only way to break the cycle of blame and pain in a relationship. It does not settle all questions of blame and justice and fairness. Sometimes you do have to have a conversation and work that through. But it does, he says, allow relationships to start over. Jesus died on the cross not because questions of blame and justice and fairness had been resolved. He died on the cross to forgive us so that they could be resolved. And that's the call for you and I. So question number two, is there anybody in this church family that you need to forgive? The answer, by the way, is yes, almost certainly. You may not be aware of it. 
And some of those situations are going to need a conversation. And some of them will need a facilitated conversation. And if that's something you need help with, come and talk to us. It's part of our day job. So, okay, finally, how is all of this possible? The answer is found in part of uh, verse 32, and actually the verses that begin in chapter 5 of Ephesians. So we're to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we remember and when we live in the truth of the fact that we have been forgiven completely by God through Jesus, we are liberated and empowered by the Spirit to go and forgive other people. That's how it works. When we remember that we've experienced for ourselves the kindness and compassion of God through Jesus, we are liberated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be kind and compassionate to other people. Or put another way, when we live in the love of God for ourselves as one of his dearly loved children, experiencing afresh every day his kindness and his compassion and his forgiveness, we can live from that place into these relationships, into the world, and share it. We don't need anything back because we've got everything we need from him. This is the theory. It's hard in practice. That's how it works. And so, friends... All that stuff we did at the beginning of the year about practicing the way of Jesus so that you're rooted and established in love, so you know how to have intimacy with God, is fundamental to this. If we disconnect ourselves from the source of this, we can't be a resource of it for the rest of the the people around us. It's so, so key. We have to learn from that place then to truly love one another. It's going to take all of us all of the time, for as long as this is your church family, being committed to loving one another, to one anothering one another, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even even when it feels like it might take you your life. And trusting that actually as it liberates someone else, they will do the same for you when you need it. That's how it works. And so let me finish with a quote from Wonder, which I love. Um... Here we are. This is the boy, August, Augie, the boy with the facial disfiguration. He says this towards the end of the story. If every person in this room made it a rule that wherever you are, whenever you can, you will try to act a little kinder than is necessary, the world really would be a better place. And if you do this, if you act just a little kinder than is necessary, someone else, somewhere, someday, may recognize in you in every single one of you, the face of God. Most fundamentally, we see it, don't we, in the face of Jesus Christ. And most beautifully and profoundly, we see it as he hung on a cross. Kindness and compassion and forgiveness right there. Let's stand.